I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Emma Lieber, a writer and psychoanalyst in formation in New York. Yeah, so what do you want to start talking about? There's so many things going on. Yeah, I mean... I was what you know. I was trying to think about what we could talk about, and I was thinking that I really wanted to talk to you about writing. Um, the writing, writing is, cure. Yeah, the writing cure. <laughs> Please talk about it. I really wanted to ask you about it. Well, I, you know, at some point in my formation, it was probably a couple of years ago. Um, I started realizing that I had a, just a major question about writing and what writing and psychoanalysis have to do with each other and what it means to write as an analyst and started realizing that this was a, a question that was really important for me and that there was something that I really had to work out around it, that it was both really important for me to write as an analyst and to transmit something of psychoanalysis and what psychoanalysis does and what it is through writing, but also that I kind of had no idea what it meant to write as a psychoanalyst. Um, and I had, yeah, I have kind of considered myself a writer for a really long time. And I had, uh, you know, I started out before I trained as an analyst, I started out in a, um, literature department. I did a, a PhD in literature and taught for a really long time. And, and, you know, in the academic milieu, you're always writing and that's, sort of expected and you kind of know what your position is as a writer. Um, it's, I don't know. It's somehow known in a way that writing is something that you do. It's a way of furthering your career. It's a way of furthering the field that it's, you're producing scholarship. Um, and there were sort of all sorts of things about the process of writing that from that position, I sort of had never questioned, um, sort of what it means to write, who, who your addressee is, um, what are the, you know, what are the sort of transferences involved in writing? What are, what's at stake when you write? Um, and where, sort of, where are you in the scene, sort of all of these, I don't know, for me, at least, um, I think it's not necessarily the case for, for all academics, but for me, all of these questions were really occluded, um, when I was writing as an academic and, and sort of all of a sudden a few years ago, it, all these questions emerged about how to, how to position myself as a writer um, and also as an analyst. Um, and it was, it was something that was very troubling and it, it seemed like something that I really had to work out. And then a couple of years ago, I was reading a lot of, uh, a lot of texts that have sort of come to be called auto theory. It's kind of a, uh, a sort of movement. I think the one of the person that most people know who who write in this way is like Maggie Nelson, who wrote the Argonauts um, several years ago. And um, these texts that are, you know, both kind of deal in high critical theory, um, but are also very personal and are sort of have elements of memoir sort of interwoven with, um, you know, really serious uh, sort of theoretical writing and. It was really in reading those and reading her and reading um, Chris Krauss and other writers sort of of that vein that I finally saw what uh, like what voice I wanted to assume or felt that I could assume as a psychoanalytic writer. Um, and a, a kind of a new kind of writing position sort of opened up for me, um, which was very much a, a kind of personal, you know, it's 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 a it feels complicated because as, as you sort of go on in your formation as an analyst to sort of take a public face as an analyst, uh, it becomes increasingly complicated to write personally. <laughs> and yet it also became increasingly important for me to do so. Um, so that's what I've come to, but it's, you know, it's still a big question for me. And I love in the beginning of your book, how you talk about how you were going to write a different book, but that this is the book that ended up needing to be written first. Right. What was that like? Well, that, you know, I've spent many years kind of ambivalently um, trying to turn my dissertation into a book, and my dissertation had really just been purely on literature. Um, and, 
you know, and I, I had a huge amount investment invested in that project. And I think I sort of knew, uh, I, I kind of always knew that that project, which was mostly on Dostoevsky, who was my sort of what I focused on in my PhD program, um, that it really was a personal endeavor. Like it really very much was a passion project and a way of sort of self-exploration and, um, but that wasn't avowed. There was no way of, of saying that, um, either in my dissertation or in the, in whatever book I was going to turn that into. And I think I, there was some way in which I needed to be able to, uh, sort of make manifest what the stakes were for me in order to be able to write. And within the confines of that project, I just couldn't do it. So I kind of labored ambivalently on that project for a very long time. Um, before I finally got to a point where I, I said, I, I have to put this down. I obviously need to be able to take on a different position as a writer in order to, to really produce something that I feel invested in. And it was actually very scary because it was, you know, this was a project that had tethered me for a really long time. And I really had no idea what it was that I wanted to write, but I felt very kind of urgently that, that something had to be written um, sort of both, for the progress of my own analysis and also for my own, for my formation as an analyst. So, um, the moment of putting away that, that first book, you know, and sort of entering the abyss of this unknown where something is going to be written, but I really have no idea what it is and kind of waiting for that, um, was, you know, it was very exciting. It was also, it was very scary actually. And how did you get into psychoanalysis in the first place? I, you know, I think it was, um, it was kind of always there for me. I like the, my parents were sort of of a generation and of a, of a kind of, they were Jews in New York in the fifties and sixties. And I think psychoanalysis was sort of in the discourse in a, in a way in my family. And I think there was kind of a certain amount of transference onto psychoanalysis already. Um, like something about psychoanalysis that it was interesting that like Freud was interesting, but I didn't quite know why. And, um, and then I started, I didn't really read any of it seriously until, until college. And in college, uh, I actually took a, a class on Lacan, uh, first. It was one of the first classes I took in college and I was absolutely terrified and didn't understand any of it <laughs> and didn't think I would ever understand any of it, but it presented itself as, something to be pursued. Um, but it, you know, I was quite afraid. And, and then I took a few Freud courses in college and I, um, I then wrote up a, a senior thesis on psychoanalysis and literature. So I think there was something, you know, I was already in a literature department and, um, there was something that I wanted to work through about, you know, in what ways are psychoanalysis and literature kind of, um, related discourses or how can we sort of speak about them together? Um, and then at, at the end of college, it sort of became a question of what, you know, am I going to really pursue being an analyst at this point or am I, um, am I going to go, go do a literature PhD program? And, um, I, I, you know, I think to a certain extent, I, so I, and I ended up doing a literature PhD and I think there was, there was something about literature that I had to work out first, sort of. Um, but I think that I also uh, even then had some sense that I probably would end up going into psychoanalytic training eventually, but that a, uh, training in literature, that a, that a literature PhD was sort of it's uh, already a good form of training um, to be an analyst, that that was something that I kind of needed to pass through. Um, and I think I also thought I wasn't ready at that stage, I think I wanted to have more experience. I wanted to teach and I wanted to write and read, read in this other venue first. Um, or I was just kind of deferring, <laughs> deferring things symptomatically, which might also be the case. Both. <laughs> both. <laughs> Same thing, fills both functions. Exactly. All functions. All functions. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, we had the, you're of course in Rendering Unconscious, the book, which we will talk about, but we had the launch party for the book here in Stockholm on Friday. 
And we ended up talking a lot about that, how like psychoanalysis has really survived through the humanities, through literature departments, film theory departments, because it's really not in psychology departments overall mm-hmm. anymore. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, pe- training people outside of clinical degrees uh, at lay analysts, if you will, or whatever you want to call it, is really important because a lot of people with literature PhDs know a lot more about psychoanalysis than people with MDs. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I mean, you know, I, I, in the department that I was in, I was actually, I was in a Russian department and um, psychoanalysis isn't, isn't uh, in Russian departments. It's actually, it's not, it's not taught all that much. Um, but certainly when I was taking classes in complete departments, it was, it was there. And I, you know, it's actually been, it's been heartening for me you know, um, I teach at the new school. I teach in the literary studies department there. And um, only recently have I started, I've started I'm teaching a course on psychoanalysis and literature there now. And I'll, I'll um, do so again, I think, next year. And uh, there's a, a huge amount of interest, actually. I mean, at least in the courses that I'm teaching, like there's really a lot of transference onto psychoanalysis and, um, and onto analysts in a way that... Uh, it's actually very encouraging. It wasn't quite what I expected. Um, but it, it does make you think that it's not, it's not dying. Like it, you know, it's, it's certainly alive and well, and it's, it's, it is being, that this is a, and it started to seem to me that this is a very important place to do, to transmit psychoanalysis, um, is in the academy and the humanities. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about that too, that like, you know, you can't kill psychoanalysis since you can't get rid of the unconscious. And, you know, it might have been displaced from its original place of, like, being in kind of psychiatry, psychology, but it survives and thrives nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about your pieces for the book? I love them. Oh. <laughs> One is yeah. related to, to Chris Krause. Right. That, um, yeah, that I had been, I think I had read, I forget when it was, I had read I Love Dick and it just, it opened up like a huge, I mean, as a lot, I think a lot of readers feel this way about that book. Have you read, have you read I Love Dick? Yeah. Um, it, and then I, and then I had watched the show, which actually is, it's, uh, people are very divided, I think, on whether they like the show because Jill Soloway did a um, did like one season of uh, a remake of I Love Dick. I have not seen the um, show. Well, I really I liked it a lot. I really did. I thought it sort of captured the spirit of the book um, in a way that that worked, and it sort of it. And it was, I think, also at this moment where I was sort of trying to figure out how to position myself as a writer, and there was something about um, about letter writing specifically, um, that I felt really compelling in that book. Um, I forget actually when it was published, it was maybe in the nineties or something a while ago. Um, but it's all written. It's, it's basically love letters to, uh, a, a man that the, that the, the writer hardly knows at all, but he becomes sort of an object of desire and fascination for her and really a device in order to allow her to write. That's kind of his, his actual function is, um, is something that makes her write. And there's something about that sort of that position of address that's both embodied and like absolutely exceeds what the object is in the life of the, of the writer that I found like really, really, really compelling. And, so, and it's also, it's a book and then the show takes this on in ways that I found really interesting. That's very much about, um, the ways that writing travels and the ways that writing sort of makes something travel. So the ways in which you are one, you are as a reader are made to create, made to write, made to sing, made to, made to act, made to, you know, do anything by what you're receiving, by what you're reading or, you know, what you're the audience of. And, um, so I felt something of reading that book and watching the show made me feel very, very compelled to write. So I ended up sitting down and, um, writing a series of letters to Chris Krause and to Jill Soloway, the, the, um, 
the person who made the, the television show, um, that were just mostly about my responses to the, the book and the show, but the, it was very, it, it, uh, uh, it felt kind of like an ethical imperative in a way that these were, um, pieces of art that asked for a response, that asked to travel in a certain way that really asked to replicate themselves. Um, and there's, it was, a you know, I think writing that, um, that that is now in in rendering unconscious, um, which is has just come out, and I'm I'm so excited to see it. But it, I, I think it was actually really in that writing that I kind of found the position that I wanted to take um, as a psychoanalytic writer. Um, nice. Yeah, I think that point is really important, and uh, and the point in the book is like it's not actually about this man. It's a it's it's so much more than the object. It's what this object person becomes for her and her writing mm-hmm. and her experience and I think people need to understand that more in general not only just with artists but with others in in their lives um because everything to me right now is like way too reactionary and people really need to understand um kind of these wider dynamics that are happening interpersonally with individuals but also on like a larger cultural scale mm-hmm no, I mean, you know, I forget which seminar it is. Three, I'm not sure. One of Lacan's seminars where he talks about, um, you know, the kind of the the psychoanalytic fantasy that we're supposed to get to sort of ablative love or something that we're supposed to get to genital love and we're supposed to be get to some place where we treat the subject, where we treat others as subjects, you know, as as subjects who aren't exchangeable. And we see the uh, we see another as um, as, a, as a full subject in their own right, and this is what marks maybe cure for the patient or like maturity or whatever you want to call it. And you know, he says that this is absolute nonsense. And who's to say that being a subject, you know, that being able to see someone as a subject a exists and b is any better? What is the point we as analysts have with objects? And that it's actually I think a very similar point to the one that Chris Press is making, which is that. Um, the object does something. <laughs> you, you, the object has a very important place in my subjective economy, and this is what's coming from it, and an enormous amount is coming from it. And um, you have to respect, you actually really have to give a lot of respect to um, how the object works um, and to, to see it as a problem, that the object is acting precisely as an object uh, that produces all sorts of things. You, you know why? Why on earth should that be a problem? Yeah, I um, totally agree. Instead, so see see it for what it is and respect that process instead of trying to make it into something else, some weird ideal that I don't know who came up with. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And as though two subjects interacting is any better, it's going to be better. Yeah. <laughs> and what about the the other paper, bellowing presidents? So that, yeah, that was for, um, you know, several years ago, um, Unbehagen um, put on, after a a sort of class series that was on Schreber, um, uh, you know, Freud's case of psychosis, President Schreber and the the Lacanian reading of of the case, uh, there was this amazing event um, that several Unbehagen members put on that uh, it was, you know, kind of just an explosion of sort of creative and critical um, thinking, and it was very exciting. And uh, so I wrote, forget exactly how the idea, I think, again, it was sort of transmitted. Um, I think someone else kind of came up with the idea of writing about, and it was it was recently after the election, um, uh writing about some, something about these two presidents, President Trump and President Schreiber. And I think what the event was kind of celebrating, um, or this is, this is similar to what we've been talking about, is, is the ways that um, language travels and the effects that writing and speaking have. And, you know, if you read Schreiber's memoir, um, that's a lot of his, that's what his concern is. And, you know, Freud and Lacan then make a lot of that, just reading uh the, the text itself, it's, it's extremely compelling, his questions about how, really how his words travel. 
um, how how they're taken up, what this means, what it means to be a, a, a creature in language, that um, your mouth and go into someone else's ears, and then that makes someone else's mouth say something, and they might even say your name, and what does it mean that they're saying your name, and they've taken this, you know, it's um, it's it's extremely moving, and um, and I think he as a writer elaborated that set of concerns. Um, it's extremely moving for readers, and it then goes on to produce. You know, I think in the introduction to the, the edition that a lot of us were reading, it says that this is the most, like the most written about case in psychiatric literature, something like that. That this is a memoir and a document that like gets people to write. It 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 makes people very excited about speaking and writing, and and it people have a lot to say about it. And um, and obviously people have a lot to say about Trump. And Trump is someone who gets people to speak and write and talk a lot about him. But I, I think, you know, what I wanted to do in that piece was sort of contrast, sort of a, a creative, it was a creative more than a critical piece, but to um, indicate something about sort of Schraber, Schraber's writing, which is just this absolutely lovely document versus Trump who gets you to speak about him. But there's something, you know, much more vicious and narcissistic and, and you know, terrible going on with that. Um, but it was it was again this kind of around this moment of my trying to think through how to how to how to uh, write as an analyst that that yeah that was a very productive was a productive endeavor and then to and then to be putting it in your book um, with all these other analysts writing sort of in in a similar spirit I think um, was, was it's our book. Yeah, our, <laughs> our book. Yes, <laughs> our book. No, where I placed it was. Um, it was it's really great and refreshing to have because the beginning of the books well it started out with a piece that Gabrielle Reisner wrote about Sabina Spielrein and her part in psychoanalytic history and I in the introduction dedicated the book to her and like all the analysts lost during World War Two um, so many of them were silenced and uh, murdered mm-hmm. um, so it starts off with her a piece about her. And then there's a piece about uh, systemic racism and oppression by Tanya White Davis and Anu Cote, who are clinical health psychologists. And then Luce Delir has a piece about the Baltimore protests that turned into riots in 2015 after Freddie Gray was murdered. Um, and then Chiara Botici has a piece about Trump and MAGA that she presented at the SIP conference that, that year, right, like the weekend after the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and Manya Stenko has a piece about uh, fake news and then and then bellowing presidents because we need a little, <laughs> a little relief yeah. <laughs> after reading so many heavy paces. Oh, and uh, Alison Enunziata, mm-hmm. if I say her name correctly, uh, her piece about internet stalking and that violence is right, right up there up front as well. So it's like heavy, 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 and then we have some bellowing presidents to kind of give us a little bit of valve, pressure valve. That's <laughs> wonderful. How, and how many contributions are there total? I mean, there's a lot. It's yeah, there's about 50 people because of the poetry as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's about 50 people total. So that's why I say it's our book. I have read it about five times to edit it, so... That right. was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot of reading the book. It's 480 pages. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. But it's great because it's, like, all different pieces of, like, I don't know, kind of Umbahagen history. It's, like, everybody involved is either in Umbahagen actively or has, like, come from France or Italy or the U.K. to speak with Umbahagen at some point along the way. And, um, and then all the poets, most of them are poets in New York, um, a lot of their pieces kind of reflect some of the heavier psychoanalytic theory pieces um, and then I ended the book with like a whole selection of poetry with Freud's idea in mind of uh, like every time I come to a new place in theory a poet has been there before me yep. so so I ended with like a selection of poetry um, yeah but it was really nice to put together and it felt really like coming full circle with like 
Bahagen and like David Lichtenstein's first piece that he wrote about us like in 2012 mm-hmm. is in there and then Julie Fotheringham has her piece about like becoming an analyst falling into analysis by accident and desire so it's like really mm-hmm. nice to have a, a whole range of like more formal academic pieces mixed with more personal pieces and more creative pieces and poetry and like mm-hmm. Chiara Potici wrote a piece that's more creative uh, and her piece about MAGA. And then, like, Stephen Reisner wrote a really uh, poignant, like, memoiric, like, musing. That's just two pages, but it's really packs a punch. So I wow. can't wait for y'all to see it. You'll all be getting them in your hands this week. That's great. That's great. And I think, you know, I think bringing together creative, I think, you know, bringing together creative and critical work is really important. Um, and, and, you know, bringing in poets and putting psychoanalysis in conversation with artists and, you know, and poets and, and people working in creative fields. It's, it's, it's a lot of, um, I mean, you know that, you know, I'm also I'm on the editorial board of the Candidate Journal, and um, which is like an, it's an online psychoanalytic publication that's been around for about 15 years and it's run by entirely by Ken Jason training and it's a psychoanalytic journal, but, um, you know, the most recent editorial board, uh, which has been doing it for the last four, I think four years or so. Um, I mean, it had it, Julie's on it. Julie's a day, Julie Fotheringham was the dancer. It, you know, we have art historians, um, on the board and poets and, and artists. And, um, we have found ourselves really interested in trying to bring together artists and psychoanalysts and you know, um, try to solicit more creative contributions, both, both from analysts and from those outside psychoanalysis. And, um, and that, I don't know, it, it, it feels really important. I mean, along the lines of what you're saying of where analysis is alive in the humanities. Um, and also that, you know, creative writing, art, literature have always been the grounds in which psychoanalysis, I mean, both what Freud was using to develop his, his theories and, um, you know, and where it's sort of stayed fertile. And, you know, if there's a question I think there is, is like, you know, how do, you know, on the one hand, psychoanalysis is going to remain alive forever because the unconscious is not going to die. On the other hand, there does, at least I feel there to be like an enormous amount of urgency in terms of how do we transmit psychoanalysis into broader culture. I mean, there are obviously changes historically about where psychoanalysis is in the culture. And um, on the one hand, I think being on the, you know, on the margins in the way that we are now is actually a very good position to be in and is maybe kind of necessary to that psychoanalysis be on the margins of um, sort of the dominant discourses. But um, for that very reason, like, I think there is an imperative to sort of to transmit something of psychoanalysis to, um, to other fields and, and into culture. And what I have been finding very compelling recently is to, is to do it by sort of by bringing artists and psychoanalysts and writers and um, creative thinkers together um, to the extent that we're always bordering on each other. I mean, if we're all working with the unconscious, then, then, there has to be there's there's always going to be a conversation that can keep that can be ongoing um and we just had uh the candidate journal has we just came out with our issue which actually will be advertising um i think we just put it up like this morning online um and over the weekend we had a, uh, a part like a re- issue release party on the subject of the issue is screens um so it's asking questions about screen life and sort of social media culture but it also works in a lot of sort of visual art and questions about visuality and aesthetics generally and um and the the release party was sort of also a performance and got a gallery space and we got a bunch of artists to put up their work um and we had a few film installations and and uh, video art and it was it was really great. It was really fun, and it really it felt like a kind of meeting um, of like various bordering fields that felt really productive. Yeah, it looked great. I saw some pictures of like Julie and a couple of other people doing some dance and Carl Jacobs and his film and yeah, it you know it it 
there was a lot going on. And it's, I, I think part also of, you know, this was part of what, um, the Schraber event was, which, you know, Evan Malader and I think Marie Hansen, um, were sort of put it together with, um, the understanding that, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for this one topic and, and to try to sort of also promote desire. I think that was, that was a lot of what was at stake that, um, this was going to be a very sort of polymorphous event, uh, with a lot of different moving parts and, uh, dancers, you know, in one area of the building and readings going on in various areas of the building and music happening in various areas of the building. And, um, I think a, a number of events that I've been involved in and that I've gone to since then have kind of followed that sort of model, um, of sort of bringing together scholarly and critical and theoretical thinking with creative endeavors, uh, in a kind of celebratory atmosphere that, um, it's been really fun. Yeah, because you and Anna Fishton had the event, I guess it was after Schreiber. It was around that same time. Um, where was it? It was like in the north, north Manhattan or almost mm-hmm. to the Bronx. And Julie did performance there too, and we had readings. Was it the, the Trump dreams? Yeah, the, the dreams. The yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah. That was really fun. That was, um, again, I think this was maybe Evan's idea that I, that we picked up on to, um, I mean, it's funny with a lot of these events, you sort of, you don't know who started, who started it kind of like something will start in one corner of the community and it'll get picked up somewhere else. And it'll, it kind of proliferates in this funny way where you lose your sense of who's responsible for what, um, which is, you know, in and of itself, very lovely. It's very (laughs) nice. Um, yeah, it's in certain ways, I think part of the ethic of that my writing is trying to capture and that I'm sort of, I, and what others are kind of interested in, but, um, yeah, I think Evan sort of had some idea at some point after the election to collect people's dreams about Trump. Um, which we picked up on on the candidate and we started collecting, sort of soliciting from Unbehagen and other analytic sort of venues. And then also outside our, you know, our friends or really anywhere we could get them um, having people send in their dreams about the, about the election and about Trump. And um, we got just a huge number of dreams. I mean, cause everyone was, you know, everyone was dreaming about Trump and super interested in this, obviously, like everyone was, kind of traumatized and had to process something um, and sort of didn't know what to do with these dreams. And so I think even to sort of like provide a repository to, to put these things that we didn't know what to do with and we didn't know how this was going to go or what life was going to look like after this, um, I think in and of itself that was a service. But so we sort of collected all of these dreams and um, got some space at Columbia that allowed us to um, put them to sort of put all these dreams together and and project them and then perform them and we worked it in with music and, um, and dance and and then we ended up putting it online on the candidate site. Um, okay, it, so it's up there. I have to link there, to that. Yeah. It's on the site. They have we have these like dream portals where you can like click through and see text of the dreams interspersed with with visual art and they're they're super compelling some of them are just absolutely amazing dreams yeah i remember it was great because everybody was reading other people's dreams but like a lot of the people who had entered dreams were there but you weren't reading your own dreams right it was interesting that whole period of time feels very fragmented it's like we did we were here and then there and it all feels like this giant kind of cut up dream sequence in itself <laughs> right right it was it the was. year after <laughs> yeah. you know and it's but I mean you don't know what things are going to produce you know I mean this this it was you know a horrible <laughs> a horrible moment but also produced you know I mean for me and for a lot of people that know really produced an enormous amount mm-hmm. you know better and worse but I talked to Todd Dean recently for the podcast and um, we were talking about um, 
psychoanalysis, like this reminds me of what you were talking about before with it being kind of on the fringes or the outskirts a bit, but, um, and how the mainstream mental health paradigm and psychology is very like DSM and diagnosis and psychopharmaceuticals and this kind of thing. Um, but he was talking about how instead of like accepting this kind of position on the outside, like why don't analysts do more to kind of change the discourse, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. psychoanalysis was a prevalent discourse in mental health uh, for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, why don't we become more active to kind of change the discourse again instead of like being okay being on, on kind of on the outside mm -hmm. and I, I I hadn't even thought about it that way so much because it kind of felt just like inevitable that everybody was in this medical model but it really does seem like a lot of different paradigms are being questioned and shifting like just just today several countries here have declared like a state of emergency about the climate like Wales and England and Scotland so mm -hmm. things are starting to happen in a different way it seems um, and I think talking about psychoanalysis in mental health, but also getting it out through the arts and literature um, and more creative events is, is working. It's the way to go. I think so, too. I mean, I think it, it, it just has to be transmitted. Like, I, I think I feel, you know, an enormous imperative for transmission, whether or not I think the question of the margin versus the center is maybe not even the question to be asking um, or sort of not relevant or at least needn't necessarily be on our minds. Um, it just has to be transmitted and then you see what happens. Um, you know, I think that I, I do have trouble with the ways in which, you know, at least, you know, certain establishments to, to sort of position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis CBT and say, we're evidence-based too. look, we have more evidence. We have all the evidence It you know, that has done, you know, that has done a certain amount in their New York Times article now written about how psychoanalysis is also a really viable evidence-based form of therapy alongside CBT. I think in the long run, that's another kind of discourse. Um, whether that brings us to the center from the margins or not, you know, may just, you know, may not be the question. Um, but I think we can't sort of, we can't back down from that, from that place and sort of have, sort of have faith that it'll, that it'll travel and, you know, I think that is what I'm seeing, and it sounds like you're seeing too that it does. It, it it will travel. It persists. It persists. Yeah, and I think that's why I I find it so interesting to find out how everybody kind of got to psychoanalysis because there's so many different paths that everyone has taken, mm -hmm. and it, none of them so far have been this kind of standard. I went to school and I decided I was going to do this, and then did these like very specific steps to get there everybody seems to have come at it you know the way life goes so we're kind of meandering life. sometimes <laughs> well and it also you know it it says a lot about someone if they're an analyst you know I, I think we also and that's kind of part I think of my position of writing sort of writing from a kind of personal position um which in certain ways is like very embarrassing <laughs> and feels very dangerous kind of but um, you know, it's, it's very, it's a weird thing to become an analyst. Like not many people do it these days. And it's, uh, right. It isn't, if you can present it such that you've been following some kind of standard model of like, I decided to be a doctor. And so I went through my training and blah, blah, blah. Then there's something that you're not saying about what made you an analyst. Like the fact that you're an analyst already says an enormous amount about your your history and your symptom and, um, you know, really personal stuff, which, um, you know, I think it's important to avow at least in some way, not necessarily to get into the nitty gritty, but to, to find a way to speak and to find a position to speak from that at least implicitly, um, avows something of, uh, the specificities of one's own, one's own history that that brought you there is, is I think that I think is kind of an imperative um, for analysts and that that was an imperative that I took on I think when when writing that um, I, something of this needs to needs to really be made manifest and I you know I in my book in the introduction I um, use this moment in um, well in Bob 
about uh, lover's discourse where he, you know, a lot of which is, is, is from a, you know, and Bach was very influential for, for Maggie Nelson. Um, and uh, where he says, you know, this is a port, you know, this book is a portrait of me. This is a, this is a portrait, but it's not a psychological portrait. It's a structural portrait. So, and what that means is sort of up for debate, but the way I took it was that, um, that there's a way of, of speaking and writing personally that and elaborates the specificities of um, the individual's life and their history, but is not a psychological portrait. It, 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 there's something structural about it that in, this, in getting really specific at, in a, in a onto theory, onto discourse, um, and that it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of complicated balancing point, but that, that for me, I think there's a wager there that that's actually where theory can happen. Um, and it's actually, it's a position that I've also taken on. I mean, now that I'm teaching, it's the position that I've taken on as a teacher as well, that, um, you know, and I often open my classes by asking students to, you know, if they've had any dreams that they want to share. And we kind of, we weave the dreams in and out of the class with the understanding that, um, when you share a dream, this is, you know, obviously this is very personal material that you're sharing, but we're, and we can't get away from that and we have to respect it and be, and be careful about it. But, um, that there is also a way of speaking personally in class and treating another person's personal speech in class that, uh, makes it not not a psychological portrait, but a structural one that, that we can do this rigorously and, um, in a, as a way of opening up onto theory rather than, you know, devolving into, into, you know, girlfriend talk or something like that. Um, which, you know, isn't, isn't necessarily bad <laughs> either. Yeah. I love that. And that's exactly what Freud did. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, and you know, and this is, um, yeah, I think it's, this has to be remembered that this is how psychoanalysis started. It started with, Freud's self-analysis, which was in writing and was, was a form of address. It was written in letters and public letters. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Emma Lieber, a psychoanalyst in formation in New York. Dr. Lieber sees patients and is a part-time assistant professor of literary studies at the New School for Social Research. She is currently authoring a book called The Writing Cure and editing a volume, Queerness of Childhood, Essays from the Other Side of the Looking Glass with Anna Fishton. She's a member of the editorial board of the Candidate Journal a psychoanalytic publication for early career clinicians, and of Dasun Bahagen, a free association for psychoanalysis. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. My website, drvanessasinclair.net or renderingunconscious.org. We're both receiving a sublime, trans-dimensional expression.
Speculation about why this is can essentially only remain speculation. The most predominant argument is physiological, biological. The cyclic nature of the moon's presence and visibility has always been easy for humans to interpret. Rather A, this same train of thought is also menstrual. Society and the place and materials cycle of women normally sticks to a regularity. The emergence, the life and art of have been easily performance and cultural progress, observable and transmittable very early on, hence an association with extended into culture. The ebb and tide of the sea also became attributed correctly to lunar forces and could easily have been extended association-wise to the ebb and flow of menstruation and its ties to invaluable new life. Towards the two men, Severine asks in a low voice, delineated by one, Eros is the... Severine, where did you find those two things? Love to you, have done. Listen to me. The Mediterranean cultures worship the moon reverently through its goddesses. The Egyptian to me, Isis. The Greek, Selene. The Roman, Diana. Et al. cross-fertilized at night over time in mythic minds and other pagan pantheons over the world had already done that and were, are, still doing it. You to enter, Andromeda, all the cells in the body are waiting to be delivered yet again. A signature given to a friendly at our bidding. As Jung observed, a man who, too, I'm a king. Nerves and blood vessels, in fact, each with unique talents to offer. Attempt to produce for my annual occultural to be able to employ it. Neither can life in itself. States the ego is web of connective of the body, perception, heartbeat, the vitalized, the fascia for me, and the rat square with trees lining it. Disposability of heavy earth psychoanalysis is reckless and dangerous a frenzy and I are writing the first appearance our goal is not to be subsumed by the shadow is steel is the largest organ in the body consciousness moon goddess has always been transfer our loyalty to it. Indicative. Lipstick. Nose. Find in the word trivial, stemming from Roman goddess trivial. And I see messages. Occasion to answer. Splendor. Unimportant irrelevant.
Another is the fact that the iconography of the powerful crescent moon associated with Luna and Diana later on became a symbol of chastity in sexuality is a force. Very sexy images discovered that his eyes were possess yourself, be hermaphrodite, are one, he explained. This, the sexualization of planets via gods and goddesses, is a language and process of necessity. If there is no mis-circling around outer phenomena that are beyond our control, then despair quickly sets in. If there is no elevation or augmentation of banal human toil into divine shape, ditto, the the student's merging of the masculine and feminine principles stemming from the immensely powerful cosmic forces and filtered through divine idealizations via myth is a safeguard for the human psyche. One that's presently and hopefully only temporarily lost. Psychoanalysis represents and not in the body. Through a higher awareness of the human mind itself and of the necessity of an advanced open-minded human culture flourished during the now awakened and literature boomed and quite often with inspired strings attached to antiquity's pantheonic health. Revitalized and everlasting symbol clothed with your eyes as you behold.